Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Excited that we're joined today by our distinguished guest, Mr. Stephen Batchelor. He's a contemporary Buddhist teacher and writer, best known for his secular or agnostic approach to Buddhism. He's one of the most influential voices in Buddhist thought today. Through his writings, translations, and teaching, Stephen engages in a critical exploration of Buddhism's role in the modern world, which has earned him both condemnation as a heretic and praise as a reformer. Stephen was born in Dundee, Scotland, and grew up in Watford, northwest of London. After completing his education at the Watford Grammar School, he traveled overland to India in February 1972 at the age of 18. He was ordained as a novice Buddhist monk in 1974 in Dharamsala, the capital in exile of the Dalai Lama. By 1976, he was living and studying in Switzerland, where he received full ordination as a Buddhist monk. In 1981, he traveled to Songwangsa Monastery in South Korea to train in Zen Buddhism under the guidance of the Venerable Kusan Sunim. He disrobed in 85 and married Martine Faget before returning to England and joining the Sharpam North community in Totnes, Devon. During the 15 years he lived at Sharpam, he became coordinator of the Sharpam Trust and co-founder the Sharpham College for Buddhist Studies and Contemporary Inquiry. Throughout this period, he worked as the Buddhist chaplain of HMP Channing's Wood. From 1990, he has been a guiding teacher at Gaia House Meditation Center in Devon, and since 1992, a contributing editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Our guest today is the translator and author of various books and articles on Buddhism, including the best-selling Buddhism Without Beliefs, Living with the Devil, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, and What is This? Ancient Questions for Modern Minds. He and Martine now live in Aquitaine, France, in a small village near Bordeaux. While at home, he pursues his work as a scholar, writer, and artist. For several months each year, he travels worldwide to lead meditation retreats and teach Buddhism. Today, Stephen Batchelor is with Banyan Books in conversation about his latest book titled The Art of Solitude. 
In a time of social distancing and isolation, the art of solitude is a meditation on the beauty of solitude. In a hyper-connected world that is at the same time plagued by social, social isolation, this book shows how to enjoy the inescapable solitude that is at the heart of human life. To be clear, this book is not a book on Buddhism, though because it is a deeply intimate sharing by Mr. Batchelor, it is informed and held up by his lifelong studies and training in that tradition. Rather, it is an examination of solitude through multiple lenses of the author's experience and the reflections of philosophers and artists throughout history. Reading this book is like drinking in the colors of a patchwork quilt. The form and structure create a sense of non-linearity in the reader, which induces a medicinal experience, like that of an expansive meditation, or maybe an experience with a plant spirit. It carries you into the silent, vibrant space of your own interiority, and surprisingly into a new relationship to others and the world. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest, you can visit his website, which is stephenbatchelor.org. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for Stephen Batchelor. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, Ross. Um, as you were speaking, you said, went to India in February 1972. That's exactly 50 years ago this month. Oh, wow. Half a century ago. Goes very fast. <laughs> <laughs> and this book uh, is, a, is a revisiting to, an, to a, a, the theme of your first book, really, isn't it? Which came out in 1983, which was titled Alone with Others an existential approach to Buddhism. And there's, there's a thread or a theme that you are still examining. Can you let us know about that? Well, you, you're absolutely right. This art of solitude uh, is an, it goes back to the first book I wrote uh, in my own voice. I'd translated books before then, but this was my first self-authored book. And Alone With Others explored effectively what I consider to be very much at the core of human experience, which is essentially a paradox of finding oneself existentially as being always alone. There's a part of my experience that I can't share with anybody else. It's my, my innermost interiority. You put it very beautifully uh, in your little summary of the book. But at the same time, uh, as, as social animals, as, 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 as language users, even when we're silent, we're always embedded in a world of relationships, in a world with others who are not me. You know, I sit in my cave and I, I think my brilliant ideas, but those brilliant ideas are being thought in probably the English language. In other words, in a shared community of ideas. You can't, you can't separate yourself out from that matrix of connectivity at all it's impossible and yet at the same time there's something within you your aloneness your solitude uh, that is something you can't share not in an ultimate in the way that you experience your life you can't you know you can't communicate that to anybody else at some level so the um uh, the art of solitude revisits one part of that binary alone aloneness and this I don't say this in the book but I'm telling you now uh, 
this is one part of a dyad of two books. And the next book will be called The Art of Care. And that will be a reconsideration of what it means to be in a relational world, a world with other humans, with other forms of life. And I'll take that not through the notion of solitude, but through the notion of care and caring. But the book will be written on the same um, formal principles in which The Art of Solitude is written. That's 32 chapters. Um, which will all be sort of you know, connected to certain Buddhist ideas, but only in the abstract. The actual text I want to be written likewise in the same style without necessarily appealing to Buddhism or any particular tradition. Is that, is, I, I know you, you talk about you, had, you turned 60 and you took this, you took a year long sort of sabbatical pilgrimage to sort of review your life and to examine solitude. And that, that experience changed you. Did that influence this book and the next one? It seems like it's, it's a new form that your writing work is taking. Um, no, I, well, actually, to be quite honest, I can't put my hand on my heart and tell you exactly when, what idea occurred in this process. I, I, I'm not so sure about that. But in my own subjective sense of, where this book came from, it emerged out of um, making collages of found materials that I pick up on the street and then I organize them into very, very formal mosaic-like grids. And I did a sequence of eight collages, which were actually four dyads, four pairs. And um, I explored very much there uh, the tension between difficult to say this, the tension between in, uh, uh, collages made of material that have text on them or images on them, which somehow represent something else, as opposed to collages of material that are purely abstract, just red, white, blue, yellow, green, stuff like that. And I create these two collages in such a way that they're made up of exactly the same number of pieces, exactly arranged in the same way but they're completely different. So there's this same, it's an attempt to catch this paradox of the inseparability and yet the difference between aloneness or solitude and other togetherness or, or care. So that was the overarching uh, inspiration. And it came from my artwork, not from thinking about Buddhist ideas, although the artwork that might've come from thinking about Buddhist ideas, it probably did. But um, so that's where the project is going. Yeah, so we've done half of this. Is, it's only, you've only got half, the first part of this project. I can't wait for the second half. Honestly, this book. Uh, you will have to wait. Yeah, I will have to wait. But I, although I can't, there's another paradox. And it, it's, a, it's a, tr a truly beautiful book. It's truly beautiful. I loved reading it and what it invoked in me. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the four eights? Can you fill us in on, on what the four eights are and how that influenced the form of the book? I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you something. Okay. We'll be back in, in literally a second. Sure. I'll just remind everyone who's here live that uh, Mr. Batcher will be taking questions. So feel free to put your questions into the Q and A tab and we'll get to those in the last 15 minutes. Oh, 
Okay, now this is um, a visual version of the book. This is how the book is organized. Right, <laughs> okay. Is the art of care. It only exists at this point so far. The two go together, you see. So, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question now. What was uh, the, the four eights, the... Oh, the four eights. Yeah. So, four eights are... The, the, Buddha, the Buddhist, uh, uh, the teachings, the ancient Buddhist teachings with the, of Buddha's early life, is that right? No, 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 not, no, not really. The, the poem? Uh, sorry? The poem that you based a lot of... Oh, right, okay, yeah. yes. Uh, the four eights. Yes. Uh, the four eights. The four eights are four eight-verse poems found in a text called the Atakavada, the Atakavaga, which means the chapter of eights. But there are many chapters, but only four of them, two, three, four, and five, consist of eight verses. So I take them in line with other scholars, that this was probably the original core uh, of the work of the Atakavaga. So I translated those four eight verse poems. And they then became part of the formal structure of the book. So the book is divided into 38, 32 chapters, which is four times eight. And um, eight of those chapters have to do with um, meditation. Eight of those chapters have to do with art. Eight of those chapters have to do with philosophy, particularly Montaigne. And eight of those chapters have to do with medicine, which is the exploration of uh, plant medicines, as you mentioned. So the, the four eights then become these four themes, and then they are organized in such a way, and they were organized, I wrote each section of four, uh, of eight chapters, and then I scrambled the whole thing so that um, the, the four elements are totally woven within each other uh, together randomly. I did that through chance operations. And um, so whenever you, you, you never know what chapter, what theme will come next. You end one part and you've not got a clue whether it's going to be <laughs> taking ayahuasca or going on a retreat or visiting a Buddhist temple. You just don't know. Or looking at art. And, and I love that. So what it meant as, as a writer was that every piece of the 32 pieces I wrote had to be able to stand on its own. I couldn't assume that the reader knew what had come in the previous chapter because that, was in the, that may not be the previous chapter anymore. Nor can I assume that I know what will come next. I don't. When I'm writing it, I haven't done the chance operations. I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. So as a writer, it becomes an extraordinary uh, creative constraint. In other words, to force yourself to write according to the demands of the, uh, of the formal requirements of the text. And this is how I make collage. Strict formal requirements, but the material is then organized often by chance operations. So it's about 
um, opera. It's about discovering the tension between order, uh, order and uh, chaos, randomness and order. So that's another theme that feeds through the uh, structure of the book. And that's ultimately inspired by the four eights, these ancient Pali poems, which are included in the book as an appendix. So you can read them. Yes. And you do talk about how that tension between the, the form or the structure and the chaos, they, they in, invoke something in the artist. They, they challenge the artist to, their mind can't just jump to the, the most obvious thought. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, this, of course, is something I, I learn very much uh, as a writer, is that um, once you start writing something, a chapter of a book, let's say, um, you go, you start probably with you've written a bunch of notes, you've got all these ideas you're going to explain, you've kind of developed your arguments, blah, 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 blah. At least this is my experience. But once you start actually writing something, which nowadays means typing it onto a computer, and then words begin to fill a page, um, and you write one sentence, and then you have to follow that with a second sentence, and a third sentence, and a fourth sentence. And that process is something that I, you can't plan for, at least I can't. I basically commit myself to a certain starting point, the first sentence, and then I'm somehow more and more caught up in its logic, where it has to go, where it will go. And I so, I mean, this, this happens to me all the time, is this is how I learn stuff. This is my preferred mode of learning, uh, is to write about things, things I don't know anything about. I've just written a 25,000 word Buddhist portrait of Socrates. Oh. I'm not, I've never read Plato before COVID, you know, struck and I had all this time to read these things. Um, but what's extraordinary is that uh, once the logic of the text or the logic of the poem or the logic of the painting uh, begins to, in a way, become dominant, then you kind of have to get out of the way. Uh, you, you know, your brilliant ideas, what you want to say and what you want to impress people with, that's now in a kind of tension with what the text is trying to say. And I've been writing now for, what, 40 years or something, and I completely trust in that process now. I've no idea where these books are going to end up. I've no idea what's going to... To be quite honest, I sit down at nine in the morning. By one in the morning... Uh, sorry, one in the afternoon, four hours later, something exists on a page that I could not have known or conceived of uh, at 9 a.m. Maybe the vague, the rough idea, yes, but how it actually turns out, and more importantly, what understandings it generates, things I really did not know uh, at 9 a.m or at least I didn't understand them with that degree of nuance, let's say. So in other words, writing is very much a, uh, a learning process. So, and, and I think it's by putting constraints, the more constraints you put, the more difficult it is in a way, because you, you're, you, you feel yourself fighting against these rules. And, um, but that I think is what actually channels the, uh, the creative process uh, 
uh, for me at least, uh, very effective. I mean, one thing the reader doesn't know, because I don't tell them, is that the 32 chapters of the book uh, uh, come to exactly 32,000 words. Really? Uh, not 32,001 or 29,999, no, no, 32,000. No, was that, that was one of the, the constraints you gave yourself right from the start. Wow. Wow. That, I mean, uh, knowing that, like, the, this, this structure, it, it really does help to make this book feel like a work of art. It really does. It's fantastic. Now, you, you look at a few different artists, and one of them is Vermeer. Mm and his paintings of these women in, in different in different situations, daily situations where they're sort of in their solitude. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, well, Vermeer is an artist that I've been drawn to since I was a child, actually. Um, probably the girl with the pearl earring. I mean, that's the famous one, uh, which actually is not included in the book. I don't think that's actually a particularly good well, that's a stupid thing to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the world's greatest paintings. I'm not, but it, um, it's what's called a trony. It's uh, a trony is a, is a part of that Dutch golden age uh, um, uh, artistic culture. Produced lots of images of kind of stereotypical figures, a peasant woman or an old man, or in this case, a woman from the Orient. And it's just a head in a completely plain background. And for some reason, people like that sort of thing. But the women in the paintings that I consider in my reflections on Vermeer are all um, uh, women in situations, in spaces, in rooms, essentially. And often you can actually see if you look a little bit carefully. It's the same props he's using, the same tablecloth and the same old chair. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's kind of, it's like a stage set, really. Um, but it's executed in this extraordinary way, whereby uh, it's always really touched me deeply about how in those paintings of these anonymous women um, who are reading a letter or just looking out of the window or holding a musical instrument, uh, you can somehow get a weird feeling of what it's like to be them then. You know, what it's like to be here. You, he, Vermeer somehow captures this in his paints, uh, the, that sense of the human being's you know, uh, essential interiority is somehow com communicated through these paintings. Uh, and I can't really think of any other great masters who, who are able to do that. Uh, Rembrandt comes close, I mean, but Vermeer is you know, pretty consistently capturing this sense of solitude, which is always embedded in a highly social space. That's what I like about it. These rooms with all of their personal lives scattered around. Uh, the presence of others is always totally implicit. So once again, we get back to this paradox of being alone with others, uh, you know, solitude and care, really. And that's really what drew me to those uh, paintings and to Vermeer and to Vermeer's life, and, uh, as much as we can figure out about it. 
One of the really interesting chapters was on um, Bob Cull, Robert Cull, who went to that island off of the tip of Patagonia. And the thing that really struck me is this theme you're talking about that even in solitude, we're inextricably in connection with, with others. And he really experienced that. Can you sort of highlight that point in his story? Yeah, the inclusion of Bob Cull is, again, one of these weird things. Um, I hadn't, before I started writing this book, I didn't know who the hell Robert Cull was. He might be listening, actually. He, comes, he's, he lives not far from you, I think. He's somewhere on the West Coast. Oh, okay. Um, but as I was writing The Art of Solitude, I was in the first chapters, I, one day I got a package through the mail, a book. People do this to me. They uh, send me a jiffy bag with a book in it, uh, usually their own book. <laughs> of course. And this indeed was a, a book from Robert Cull uh, with a handwritten letter accompanying it. And the book was called Solitude. And I was writing a book about solitude. Now, Bob Cull didn't know that. He couldn't have known that. So this was a weird kind of coincidence. Uh, uh, this brings you into the, the, <laughs> the more far outsides of karmic theory and so forth and so on which we won't go into but it, it struck me and I read the thing I think it was a beautiful book I loved it and it fitted my purposes extraordinarily well and so I decided to write a chapter about Bob so I got in touch with him we had, we're still we still have quite a good uh, correspondence going and um, so I got to know him a bit through our letter letter emails and so on and um, what impressed me about him was that he made this concerted effort to go to the most remote part of the world he could find, which in his case was off the tip of Patagonia in South America, uh, and this little, little sort of cove, a little beach, I mean, just hundreds of miles from any other human being. And, um, and he basically, his book is um, essentially his journals. Um, you know, what he wrote, his reflections, and some of them, I think some of them are, are very profound. I mean, they're just as, as, as insightful as Montaigne or some, you know, what, solitude does bring out a part of ourselves that perhaps, you know, we have difficulty accessing, other, you know, other than being really totally alone with ourselves. But the curious thing is that uh, he also had email. Right. <laughs> and... Um, not that he was spending his time checking his email. He didn't do that. Uh, he used it purely from his, because his friends were, believe it or not, worried that their, their uh, good friend Bob was going to be cut off from the rest of humanity for a year. And um, so they devised this system whereby he, at the end of each month, he'd send a green or an amber or a red signal, meaning I'm fine. I'm not great, but I'm okay, and I'm in trouble. That's all he did it for, except he would also go onto the tech support sites of uh, outboard motor manufacturers to fix his, his, his boats and stuff. But other than that, he, he didn't have any communication with anybody, which makes him the only person uh, educated person, let's say, in the whole world who was connected to the internet but didn't know about 9-11. Oh, right. happened halfway through his stay. Or, no, was it halfway? Yeah, somewhere like halfway through his stay. And 
so he, he knew nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing about it. Has he told you what his re sorry? I was going to ask, did he tell you what his reaction was to that when he got home? And um, no, he didn't actually. Or if he did, I've forgotten. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. One of the things about him that I found so interesting was you quoted from his journals, and I'm just paraphrasing something. Like, he actually felt that writing in his journal was an act of breaking solitude because he had the thought in his mind of others reading it in the future. Yeah, I included that passage because I thought it captured something quite central to the paradox of solitude. Um, Montaigne is guilty of exactly the same. In other words, they, they go off and close themselves off from everybody else in the rest of the world. And then they're just endlessly writing stuff. And they realize uh, both of them, Montaigne is, is, is quite conscious of this problem. He realizes that actually solitude is what enables him to enter another level of communication with others. You, it, and not only Montaigne and, and, and uh, Bob Carlo pointed this out, but you find it in a lot of the writing on solitude that uh, although solitude gives you the sense that you're going to be completely alone and you know have nothing to do with anybody else, um, that's actually a fairly superficial way of understanding the actual felt experience of solitude. And um, whether it's Christian mystics or Buddhist monks um, or philosophers, the, 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 there's this common understanding that physical solitude is just step one. Step two is spiritual solitude, what the Buddhists call citta viveka, the solitude of the spirit, the soul, the heart. And um, physical solitude, anyone can do that. You just get a boat to the middle of nowhere and bingo, it's done. But what you realize very quickly, and this is true of anybody who goes on a meditation retreat for the first time, think, oh, wow, great, silence, peace, love, joy, all these things. And of course, what happens is that within a few, once the novelty wears off of being on a meditation retreat, the mind just goes berserk. And it's all over the place and you just can't stop thinking. You can't stop bringing people cluttered into your little retreat hut. So this inner solitude is actually the real challenge. I mean, how can I actually carve out a space within my own inner experience that is comparable to a kind of monk's cell, as it were? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually requires a great deal of work. And solitude for me is actually something you do. It's not something you find or something you sort of get to. It's something you have to create. And, and, and contemplative disciplines of all traditions are basically uh, methodologies of cultivating and developing an inner solitude. In other words, a, a capacity to be alone and at ease and okay with who you are, yourself, who you are. And that groundedness, that's in a sense, that sort of natural clarity of mind is precisely what we need in order to enrich and refine our, our thoughts, our ideas, our communications with others, our relationships and so forth and so on. So it, it, the two can never be disentangled. Although periods of solitude, you know, deliberate periods 
of going off somewhere remote. That's, I think, an extraordinarily valuable thing to do. I think it should be part of our education system as young people to have these kinds of experiences. Um, and I think people who have lived it and who have communicated and shared that experience teach us a great deal, not just about our inwardness, but also about how that affects uh, how we then engage uh, with others. One of the one of the themes you mentioned it is is the plant medicines as well, and mm -hmm. you you talk about wanting to review your early formative experience that sort of steered you towards the Dharma as a young man with uh, with LSD, I believe it was. And so you revisit it, and the first experience you describe in the book is is with a peyote ceremony in Mexico, and you sort of had the intention to review, in a way, review or reflect on your life and work. And and can you tell us what role that played for you, but also in in this greater theme of solitude, what role plant medicines can play? Um. Well, as you said, I mean quite well. Uh, one of the reasons that many of my generation uh, ended up in India and Nepal and these places studying Buddhism or Hinduism is because we'd gone through the 60s experience of experimenting with psychedelic uh, substances um, and so on. And again, I don't want to say that it's the psychedelic substance in and of itself that is transformative. It's not, it's, it's, it's part of a complex set of conditions that we uh, can create. Uh, in the 60s, the conditions we created were fairly chaotic. We didn't really understand that. Uh, you know, you go to noisy music venues and things, uh, that's really not appropriate, I don't think. Um, but in any case, whatever the, you know, the, the, the mistakes we made and the excesses and the dangers and so on, it did actually trigger an awareness in a generation really of other dimensions of what is humanly possible within our own organism, through our own minds and brains. And this was very, very exciting. Uh, it, it, it opened up a new set of possibilities, not of, you know, out there in the world, but so much, far more so within the human being, him or herself. And uh, a famous book uh, that came out, actually, I think it was in 1971, was Be Here Now by Baba Ramdas or Richard Alpert. And I managed, again, by a chance, uh, when I was uh, 17 or so, we, I, I managed to get a copy of that almost as soon as it came out. Um, and uh, that was for me a key, as it was for many of us, that connected the psychedelic experience with forms of Eastern spirituality. For Ramdas, that became a fairly devotional form of Hinduism. For others, different kinds of Buddhism, Sufism, Taoism, and so forth and so on. But I think it really was an, a, an opening up to that. But once I got involved in Buddhism, then I stopped you know, taking any of these things. And for many, many years, I was leading a very, you know, very <laughs> pure life, let's put it, you know, no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll uh, for <laughs> 20 years. Um, but I never forgot that actually I probably wouldn't be writing all these books on Buddhism or 
doing the things I did in my life had it not been for the inspirational power of these, of these medicines. So at the age of 60, I, I thought this is a time I really could benefit, I think, from, from going back to those formative experiences and seeing how they stand up today. But this time I wanted to do it as in a ceremonial setting in a circle, a medicine circle, with a shaman, with a guide, uh, with others who are participating in the same experience in a controlled space, as it were, uh, like in a retreat, as it were, if it were meditation. So some friends of mine in Mexico arranged uh, for me to participate in a small ceremony uh, near Tepotzlan, uh, which is near Mexico City. Um, with a native Huechol uh, 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 shaman of the Huechol tribe. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience. Uh, it, it really was. And I, I felt it both, uh, it, it, it somehow just suspended a lot of the, the stuff in the mind that gets in the way. And of course, meditation does that as well. But these things do it quite, quite powerfully, uh, quite radically, but it doesn't last very long, a few hours, overnight, if you wish. But it does, I think, uh, bring us into a state of extremely deep contemplation, of clarity, uh, stillness, and a kind of transparency of consciousness that has a very, very strong emotional affective dimension. It's got a lot to do with feeling, a lot to do with embodiment. Uh, in that sense, it's quite different from some forms of meditation. But in my own case, and I think for each person, it's always going to be different probably each time, especially if you break these up by many years between the different experiences. Uh, but for me, it was very powerfully a kind of confirmation I felt on the one hand, uh, a sense of, 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 yes, I'm happy with what I've done in these last 30, 40 years. But at the same time, I felt it also as a kind of purification that I'd somehow rid myself of something through this ceremony. And uh, the peyote, um, it's active, uh, alkaloid is, is mescaline and although the act the overt effects last for four or five hours I found that my in whole embodied experience continued in this vein for another you know, for, for weeks um, not at the same level of intensity but still there was a very clear sense that something had been kind of released I felt and that's why I think of purification. And then after that, I did a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies. And that, of course, is all about purgation, la purga. Uh, and uh, that, too, in a sense, continued in the same sort of uh, vortex, uh, as it were, trajectory. Um, but now I found these experiences really quite, uh, quite moving, quite humbling, and also bringing me into 
a much more intimate sense of being part of the natural world. Um, difficult to explain exactly how, but I felt that with LSD as well. It, for me, it was a, I was what was called a pastoral hippie, not a cosmic hippie. <laughs> I was into, you know, lying in the woods and looking at flowers and blades of grass and stuff. Um, and, and that for me was really a very powerful and important experience to be somehow, somehow being, be somehow totally nakedly exposed to one's, uh, you know, one's physicality, one's animalness, one's animality perhaps. And um, that too was another sort of uh, revisit uh, in these, uh, in these uh, medicine circles. You also make the point that there's a need for a very nuanced discussion around these plant medicines. And um, you, you mentioned uh, you just even before one of your ayahuasca ceremonies in Spain, you're contemplating your friend who, who passed away tragically, Michael Stone, who many people in the Banyan community will know that young, charismatic Buddhist teacher, Michael Stone, who passed away from a fentanyl overdose. And I'm just going to quote what you, you said in your contemplation about that. You said, I worry whether my liberal attitude towards psychoactive substances might have contributed to the tolerant culture that tacitly gave him permission to experiment with an illegal opioid more potent than heroin. What Michael needed from a Buddhist teacher like myself may have been an unambiguous example to abstain from all such substances. So how do we how do we start to have these conversations? How do we reconcile those? You know, how how have you how have you contemplated that yourself and reconciled that for yourself? Um, I probably am not reconciled to it if I'm entirely honest. And one of the reasons I wanted to include this dimension of my life in a book, in other words, to go public with it, was precisely as part of you know coming in a resolution. Um, I kind of suspect there's a kind of omerta, a silence around the use of these substances within uh, spiritual Buddhist and other communities. I think people are actually you know, engaging with uh, psychoactive substances uh, without really you know, disclosing it openly uh, to the, their own communities perhaps or or in some ways, I, I feel there's a kind of a, a kind of an embarrassment, uh, a certain sort of mm, discomfort around uh, the ingestion of uh, of any kind of mind-altering substance. And for many Buddhists, uh, all of these uh, plant medicines, these drugs, if you wish, um, would be considered to be forbidden by the fifth precept, which is to abstain from. Uh, substances that um, that lead to carelessness and uncaring. That's how this, this, the precept is actually phrased. Uh, and it specifically refers to alcohol, drinks. But we have to remember that in, in Sanskrit languages, uh, you don't smoke a cigarette, you drink a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, so drink means in, in ingestion, basically, of substances that uh, have, um, well, this is what the text says, it lead to uh, 
carelessness, uncaring, drunkenness, intoxication. Now, I can see that that is certainly the case with alcohol and with many other mind-altering substances, but I don't honestly feel that applies to, say, ayahuasca, taken under the sort of conditions in a medicine ceremony, or peyote. Um, that I feel that actually, if anything, those kinds of ceremonies, that ceremonial usage, actually doesn't lead to care, uncaring and carelessness. It leads rather to the opposite. I think it enhances one's sense of caring, one's sense of love, uh, and also one's, one's sensitivity, one's carefulness, one's, uh, you know, one's, one's basic kind of relationship to the world in a gentle and kind and fair way. Um, so I find it difficult to sort of include these kinds of you know, substances under some sort of blanket condemnation, which is often the case in religious groups, it's certainly the case in Buddhism. Uh, and I think we need to have a conversation about that. I think we also need to have a conversation about to what extent to which meditation too has a neurochemical dimension. If you sit in, and the jhanas, which I talk about in the book, I talk of going on these retreats where we, you know, which are aimed at getting into very deep states of concentration, which are accompanied by what the, you know, the Pali texts themselves call rapture, bliss, joy. It's there in the text. So there are techniques of meditation that can engender um, quite rapturous and blissful states of mind. So what's going on? Well, the, the neurobiologists uh, would explain this in terms of the alteration of chemicals within the brain, particularly serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. These are all natural uh, substances that have a mood enhancing effect. And it seems that doing certain kinds of meditation can actually uh, release those chemicals in your bloodstream and bring you into non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I described that. I wasn't a particularly good jhana meditator, but I did on one or two occasions get into a very altered state of mind. Um, and I described this in the books. So I don't need to talk about it here. But I think what the conversation has to be about is what are we doing when we meditate? Are we actually also just you know, performing yogic type exercises that in fact have a neurochemical consequence that engenders particularly, you know, rapturous uh, states of mind. Um, I don't think we can any longer pretend that the mind is one thing that sort of temporarily inhabits the body and then it, you know, buggers off again. I think our understanding of consciousness now is one in which that it is very much uh, a consequence of the kind of embodied creatures we are interacting with this environment, the biosphere. And that interaction is what generates consciousness. Uh, and that's the standard Buddhist view, by the way, in the early text. Consciousness is an emergent property of an organism encountering an environment. That's slightly modern language, but that's essentially what Buddhism says. And so, um, when we uh, meditate, uh, yes, we're performing certain exercises, but those exercises are taking place within 
a highly complex organism, many of whose uh, subjective experiences have a, not only a neurological, but a chemical correlate somewhere in the body. So this I think really does need to be talked about, both to get a better understanding of what meditation is actually doing at, at one level, it's not the whole story obviously, but at the same time to then say, well, in that case, what would be the difference to take, let's say a certain, you know, a small glass of ayahuasca in a ceremony, uh, as opposed to going into a meditation retreat and doing certain exercises that also uh, lead to altered states of mind. I mean, in both cases, you could argue, you're just uh, altering the neurochemistry of your brain by different methods. What, what's important is the, is, is, is the extent to which that experience is contained and held in a supportive and safe environment. And that's true for meditators, just as much as it is true for people who participate in shamanic ceremonies. And you also talk about how the way that carries into the rest of our life is is yeah. the, really the measuring stick, isn't it? Whether it's a meditation retreat or whether yeah, exactly. it's a medicine ceremony. Yeah, exactly. That's the the, the 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 purely private subjective experience that you have on your own in your solitude is 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 only a part of the whole story. And I think we must be careful not to privilege, you know, sort of you know deep meditation states uh, or whatever. Um, but as, as though they somehow have an intrinsic value all of their own. No, they don't. They're part and parcel of our interrelatedness with the world. And the real question is not, you know, how deep an enlightenment did you get on that ceremony? The question is, how did that experience on that ceremony help you become the kind of person you want to be? Which is how I would define ethics. It's an ethical question. Is this going to make me into a kinder, wiser, more courageous, more creative, more imaginative person? And can I demonstrate that? Or do I demonstrate that in my actual, you know, the actual you know, things I do, the work I do, the relationships I have, the art I make, or whatever it is? Thank you, Stephen. I have. I, I wish I could uh, keep talking to you for much longer, but I, we have some nice questions coming in from our live audience too. So we'll get to some of those. Um, the The first one here is from is from John, and he asks, or he says first, "Thank you for all of your wonderful books." At this point in your life, what aspects or teachings of Buddhism do you accept, and which do you set aside or find problematic? And what do you accept or find problematic in the approach of the quote-unquote new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris? Uh, okay, I mean, it's, it's, I can't, I'll give a brief answer, which won't do justice to the question. But broadly speaking, the elements of Buddhism that I feel are, um, are in a sense, central or at the core are those you cannot derive from Brahminic or Jain or other Indian traditions at the time. That seems fairly self-evident, but it's actually quite difficult to 
tease that apart because the Buddha clearly did live in a time where most people believed in reincarnation, karma and these things. That was part of the, the worldview. It was accepted by all the wise people in the world at that time, or most of them, not all of them. Um, and so he, spe he uses that language, I mean, clearly. But there's many instances where what he says actually doesn't really fit that story. The, you know, particularly if you think of consciousness as he does, as an emergent property that is produced by the interactions of an organism with its environment, which he says very, very clearly or many times, then how can such a consciousness survive the physical death of the body? In other words, if there's no organism, uh, there can be no encounter with an environment, ergo, there can be no consciousness. And he actually says in one of the suttas, he says the, um, he says the idea that consciousness can be reborn, he said, is, is impossible. But <laughs> you then have other passages where he seems to be accepting without any problem at all, the traditional Indian views of rebirth and karma. So essentially what I'm interested in doing is teasing apart as best we can at this distance in time. Those teachings which seem to me to be somehow uh, um, distinctive and unique to Gautama, the Buddha, and cannot be derived from other elements of the culture of his time. That doesn't mean those other elements have no value, but they're, ex, uh, they're, 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 they're not intrinsic, they're extrinsic uh, to the Dharma. And what was the second part of the question about? What do you accept or find problematic in the approach of the quote-unquote oh, new, uh, the new atheists? Well, I think that's, they've kind of moved on. Uh, Sam Harris has definitely moved on from being new atheist. Uh, uh, I was on Sam Harris' podcast a couple of years ago, waking up. Uh, and I also knew, I knew Sam Harris donkeys years ago when he was a um, geeky kind of uh, university student. Um, I like his work very much. I think what they're doing is great. Um, but um, what I don't like about the new atheists is that they take you know, an unnecessarily militant attitude towards God. In other words, they frame the whole discussion in terms of some kind of binary opposition. You either believe in God and you are kind of stupid, or you don't believe in God and you reject God and therefore you're kind of smart. In fact, these guys actually tried at one time to, to, to try to get the words, to start using the word, the smarts. They wanted it to take off in the same way that the word gay had taken off. Of course, they failed. <laughs> Nobody goes around, oh, the smarts. But <laughs> I, I think the problem really with them is that it's, uh, it sets up an unnecessary binary. And, uh, and then if you try to locate Buddhism within that binary, it has to take one side or the other. And so it gets, you know, it's, it's atheistic. I don't think Buddhism is atheistic, except in an extremely literal sense. It doesn't have any need for the word God. It, it doesn't need God speak. It can do everything it wants to do without having to mention or evoke something or someone called God. So it is non-theistic. It's a theistic. Uh, if anything, the Buddha has an ironic relationship to 
god or gods, as it were. Um, and uh, what I tried to do in my book, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, was basically to try to define what a Buddhist atheism would be rather than a new atheism or a militant atheism or an anti-Christian atheism. And it would be a kind of ironic atheism. In other words, you recognize that, you know, people entertain ideas about different kinds of gods and so forth and so on. And that's, you know, that might even be a good thing at times. It might be a helpful way to see the world. It might give you moral support. It could be fine. But um, it's, that's in a sense its value. And I think if, if, if the new atheists are basically about saying anybody who believes in God is stupid, um, I think they're failing to see the extraordinary uh, value that such beliefs can have to people, how, um, how much hope it can give in people's lives, how much consolation when they really are suffering. So I think it's silly to the sort of rejection of God. Um, and we could go on. Next question. Sure, sure. I think we've just got time for one more. So before we get to it, I'll just quickly take a moment to thank everybody in the live audience for being here. It's so wonderful to have people joining live and, and creating the space together. And uh, of course, to our, our podcast producer and events curator, Jacob Steele, for everything he does. Thank you, Jacob. To Banyan's owner, Colin Limworth, who's been at it now for 51 years, and everybody who works at Banyan Books and Sound and the great community we have. Um, there's a question here from Catherine that's very uh, poignant for the time we're in right now. She starts by saying, Yes, the matrix of connectivity. How do you contextualize your insights today with the war in Ukraine? Peoples around the world rallying in protest to help us to help to help us help ourselves and each other maintain equanimity and wise action. Yeah, it's a very good question. And um, in fact, today I actually got an email from a Ukrainian friend in Denver whose family are in Kharkiv, which I think is one of the towns that's being targeted, the second largest city in Ukraine. So, well, that's a very, very tentative connect, personal connection I have to the crisis. But as a European, you have to remember that where I'm sitting here in France, in southwest France, you know, I'm about a thousand miles away from this, across land. I'm, it's the war in Ukraine is closer to where I am than Toronto is to where you are in Vancouver. You know, this is Europe, and, and I'm very intensely aware of being European. Um, I live in a house, this house I'm speaking from now. Uh, this upper story where we are, this was requisitioned by the German military during the Second World War. There were German military officers here. Uh, this is not some, something that you know, happened elsewhere. This is what happens in Europe, and it has happened in Europe. And what I think is really profoundly shocking is that it's beginning to happen again. And we kind of saw it coming, but we didn't do anything about it, really. And I think this has been a real body blow to the sense of European you know, we're, we're beyond all that stuff. This sort of thing goes on in Africa and so on, but not here. And it does. And it's just as nasty and violent and brutal as anywhere else. So, you know, this is an, an enormous challenge, I think, for all of us. Uh, um, how do you, on the one hand, say, yes, this is happening. 
this is going on, uh, and to not be sort of overwhelmed by rage and anger and a sense of injustice and, and getting you know, worked up about it. How can I be calm with that? How can I respond to that in a way that might actually help? And I think perhaps to get to that space, you do need a kind of contemplative silence, a solitude perhaps, in which to really reflect you know, more deeply about not only the history and the conditions that have brought this about, but the fact that human beings are so ready to kill one another. Uh, on the basis of holding basically different concepts in their minds. And uh, this is an incredible challenge. And um, so I, for me, it's, you know, it's something I'm very much processing at the moment and trying to get to grips with and come to terms with, uh, both as a human being, as a European, but also as a, as a writer, as a practitioner. So thank you for that question. I'm glad we could end on that point. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen Batcher. We've been we've been in conversation about his latest book, The Art of Solitude, and I look forward to the next one, The Art of Caring. I believe he said was the the title. Uh, actually, the next one won't be The Art of Care. The next one will be what I'm writing now, which is tentatively going to be called Socrates, Buddha, and Us. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to seeing that and hopefully having you on again. I'd be very happy to do that. It was a lovely conversation. And thank you, Jacob, for so skillfully and invisibly hosting it. Have a great day, everyone. And thank you all for being here. And, that, and I hope it was of some interest to you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.